Will you remain standing and let's read together our scripture for this morning, Acts twenty seventeen through 38. Now from Miletus, are you with me? Here we go, together. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, before we take our uh, kind of deep dive into this text, uh, let's just pause and make note of some preliminary uh, thoughts, preliminary considerations. We, we read the travelogue in verses 13 to 16 last week, but just to kind of help us this morning to, to reconnect, reorient to where Paul is and, and why he's there, allow me to read it again. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, 
for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So, so you may recall that Paul most recently had, had gone to Greece. He'd gone over into uh, the provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. He'd gone southward to the southern tip of Greece, um, which was in those days remarkably known as Greece. <laughs> and um, But then um, there was a conspiracy against his life that uh, that was revealed. And uh, that motivated him, for some reason, not to travel by sea. He didn't just get on a ship from where he was uh, to travel over across the Aegean Sea to the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. But instead, he traveled overland up through back up through Achaia, which is where uh, Athens is and Corinth, and and then up into Macedonia, where cities like Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi were. And then he he caught a ship there at Philippi, or actually the port city of Neapolis, and traveled across the northern Aegean uh, to um, Assos. And, um, you know, we kind of... So I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes when I'm reading scripture and I see these names, I think, yeah, you know, you just move on, right? You just kind of read them. And um, but but here we are then that Saul has uh, Saul Paul has decided to sail past Ephesus because we're told here that he was in something of a hurry to get to Jerusalem. Now in in time for the day of Pentecost, we'd read earlier that, uh, if you recall, that he had originally desired to reach Jerusalem by Passover, um, which he didn't make. Circumstances prevented that schedule. Instead, he chose to lay over here in this place called Miletos. Um, so where is Miletos? Well, Miletos was an ancient city. It's about 50 miles south of Ephesus on the south, southwestern coast of Asia Minor. Again, remember that we're talking about the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, Miletos was uh, not an insignificant city. Um, when it was founded in ancient times, it, it, it featured a, a large, very busy seaport. Uh, the city was rebuilt on several occasions, most notably by Alexander the Great and then later Julius Caesar. It it actually reached the height of its glory after about 133 B.C., uh, at which time the city had allied itself with Rome. It became part of the Roman province of Asia. And uh, the, Rome, the ruins and the monuments that are still standing there are, are really very impressive. Um, I went on... YouTube, because I thought, here's here's another city that I've just kind of ignored, you know, and what happened there, why was it important, and uh, if you just type in uh, Militas on YouTube, you'll, you'll find more videos than you actually want to watch. Um, I'll refer to that as YouTube University. Paul's message to the elders of the Ephesian church that we just read together is surprisingly... Um, the only address in the entirety of the Acts of the Apostles that's de- delivered to an exclusively Christian audience. Isn't that, in- isn't that interesting? It's the only one in all of Acts that is directed exclusively to Christians. All the others, whether from Peter or Stephen or Paul, are either evangelistic sermons that were preached to Jews or pagan Gentiles or their legal defenses before the Jewish or Gentile authorities. And then let's just notice together that Paul's address is directed at church leaders. Church leaders. 
He calls them elders in verse 17. Uh, in the first part of verse 28, he refers to them as uh, overseers. And then the second part of 28, uh, he calls them shepherds. These these three titles apply uh, all apply to the same group of people. Each of them speaks to the responsibilities, the varied responsibilities of those who are called to lead God's church, specifically the ta- tasks of leading and tending, feeding, protecting the sheep. So with that, let's let's get into the text. In verses 17 to 21, then Paul reminds them of the past that they had known, the past that they had known. Now from Miletus, he sent to uh, Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility And with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 17 tells us then that that Paul sent this message to the elders of the church in Ephesus with a request to join him there in Miletus. I I think it's an interesting request. It was about 50 miles or so from Ephesus to Miletus. Not an extremely long distance, even in those days, but, but not a short one either. How many of, how many men answered the call and attended this little leadership retreat together? We're not told. Uh, Luke doesn't provide us with any of the details that, uh, you know, our wives seem to want to know when when we return from a, a men's retreat or a business trip. He, he doesn't offer any comments on who was there, uh, who wasn't, uh, the, the reasons or the excuses given by those who, who didn't make the trip, nothing about the, the travel conditions or the weather, the food, the accommodations, nothing about fashion trends and militas or, or side trips any of them may have made along the way. Instead, Luke takes us right into Paul's address. As I've already noted, his his first focus is on the past that they had known. Accordingly, he begins by saying, you yourselves know. Make note of that. You yourselves know, verse 18. And then he proceeds to defend the integrity of his ministry among them for, for those nearly three years of his stay in Ephesus. Um, we ought to ask, I think, why Paul felt the need to do this. And I, I'd like to propose uh, two possible reasons. The first is this. It's, it's possible that, as had happened in Thessalonica after he departed there, um, that a smear campaign had been launched against Paul by his detractors in Ephesus. Uh, it's been about a, a year or more that has passed since he had left Ephesus we know that Paul certainly had his detractors among both the Jews and the pagan Gentiles in Ephesus. On the other hand, it may be that Paul, by calling to their remembrance the way that he had lived and ministered among them, uh, was simply offering um, his example to them as a model for the ways that they should conduct themselves as shepherds of the flock. Or, or maybe it was some combination of both of those things. In, in any case... In verses 18 to 19, he reminds them first of the manner of his life and ministry among them from start to finish of those three years. He he had served the Lord with with all humility, with tears, with trials, and his words that that had happened to him through the plots of the Jews. Um, 
And actually writing earlier, when he had been in Ephesus, he wrote First uh, Corinthians, what we know as First Corinthians, that letter to the church in Corinth. And he told them on that occasion, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And then he adds this, there are many adversaries. A wide door of ministry has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. One chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul described his experience in in Ephesus metaphorically as fighting with wild beasts. Um, In other words, as as he had in other cities, he'd received something of a beatdown in Ephesus that included what he described as humiliation and tears and trials. And then having reminded them of the character of his ministry, uh, in verses 20 to 21, he describes for them its content. Character and then content. Despite whatever opposition or, or adversity he had experienced there, he, he hadn't allowed all of that to intimidate him into silence. On, on the contrary, uh, Paul had persisted in his ministry of teaching and preaching, and specifically notice he hadn't shrunk back from teaching them anything that was profitable to them. Uh, he, he didn't leave anything out. And neither had Paul hidden in the shadows. He, he taught them, he says, in both public and private settings, uh, even in their homes. His ministry was open to, to anyone and everyone who would listen. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He he knew that for anyone who believed, whether Jew or Gentile, it was the power of God that would lead to their salvation. Nor had he watered down uh, or presented a watered-down, sugar-coated, secularized, easily digested version of the gospel message. He didn't promote uh, easy believism, as some call it today. He had preached the whole gospel. He had delivered the full meal deal, calling them to radical repentance from sin. He called them to radical personal faith in Jesus Christ. And so he calls them to remember that. Remember that. I wonder how many of you have seen the Jesus Revolution movie yet. Just three of you. I would recommend you all go see the Jesus Revolution movie, um, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it, 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 uh, in telling the story of the conversion of, uh, evangelist Greg Laurie, um, it, it details something of the history of one of the greatest revivals, uh, in recent history. And, um, that took place um, in the late 60s into the early 70s, and I'm dating myself here, but I was in about eighth grade, I think, in 1969. And what what it reminded me of was how God had used that in my life. Now, I was up in wet, cold, gray Bellingham, Washington, not in sunny Los Angeles. But um, the influence of the Jesus Revolution uh, spread very quickly. And it was during those years that God was working in my life in pretty significant ways. And so it caused me to remember uh, God's love for me, the, the early days of my spiritual life, his His call on my life, uh, the, the desire, the passion that, that began back then for me personally to uh, to really serve the Lord 
to know Jesus, to serve him, to follow him with my life. And, and the other reason I think uh, that it's good to for you to go um, is not only will it inspire your faith, but it will help you kind of understand a lot that's still going on today because I think the ripples of that revival that was, that's was that been referred to as the Jesus Revolution continue um, today in, in a lot of ways. Um, so I would encourage you to go. It will help you to remember something important. So Paul calls them here, these elders, to remember his ministry among them. He probably also brought to their remembrance the transformation that had taken place in their own lives during the days of his ministry there, the, the transformation that had taken place in the lives of, of many family members of theirs, the lives of others around them. They, I'm going to guess that they spent some time laughing together about things that happened during those three years, and maybe even crying as they remembered um, some of the hard things that had happened. And in summary, he's, he had said to them, you yourselves know then the character of my ministry among you. And because you were there, and you recall the content of my message, the character of my ministry, and the content of my message. And then in verses 22 to 24, Paul turns from reminding them of the past they had known to the future that he was being shown by the Holy Spirit. At verse 22, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now there's irony here, and I don't, I don't want you to miss it, because notice it's the, the Holy Spirit who warns him in every city, every city, that imprisonments and afflictions await him in Jerusalem, is the same Holy Spirit who nevertheless compels him to keep traveling to Jerusalem. Again, Luke doesn't tell us how it was that the Holy Spirit had previously been communicating these things to Paul, whether it was by direct personal revelation, maybe some of it audible, some of it inaudible, uh, or through the words of those who exercised prophetic giftedness in the various churches, whom the Holy Spirit prompted to speak to Paul of what awaited him. Paul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, that hard stuff was in his near future. And nevertheless, he was hurrying to the place where he knew it was going to happen. And let me ask you, who does that? Who does that? Here's what I think is the answer. Only one who's able to honestly say what Paul goes on to say in verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul's overriding concern the great passion of his life was, was not to preserve his life and to survive at all costs, 
but rather that he would finish the race. He'd finish the course that that God has set before him, complete his Christ-given calling to be a witness to the gospel of the grace of God. So let me ask you another question. Who else does that remind you of? I think it's the one who about 25 years earlier has said to his followers, see, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. See, and Jesus knew with shocking clarity what was going to happen to him when he got to Jerusalem, and he went anyway. He had a mission to fulfill. What self-protective impulses or, or motivations are preventing you from giving yourself heart, soul, body, and mind to the call of God on your life? Do you believe that your life is so precious that your personal agenda is of such high value that obedience to the call and the command of God has to take a back seat? What step of obedience are you avoiding today because you're giving yourself permission to stand in the way, to be the personal roadblock to your own spiritual fulfillment? Is is there a relationship that, that you're holding on to so tightly that it's standing in the way of you becoming the person that, that God wants you to be and and doing the things you know he's calling you to do? Do you really think God will bless you for your resistance? Will you trust him today? Will you, will you surrender yourself to the sovereign, all-wise, all-loving God and his agenda for your life? Paul goes on in verses 25 to 27, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. See, he he knows that none of them are going to see him again. Nor will he see them. And it just adds a poignant finality to the occasion. But, But what's this declaration that he's innocent of their blood all about. He's expressing a principle from Ezekiel 33 where the prophet said, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, 
he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. City's under attack. Watchman on the wall says nothing. People die. God says, I will hold him to account for his failure. See, Paul's portraying himself to the Ephesian elders as a watchman on the wall of the city. He's declaring his innocence of their blood because he has blown the trumpet. He, he blew it loud and long and clear. For three years, he did not hesitate to proclaim to them God's whole plan of salvation. So his conscience is clear. He cannot be held responsible should any of them reject the message of the gospel that can save them from sin and eternal separation from God. See, see, neither can any of us today, if we've heard the gospel, if it's been explained to us with clarity. We're responsible for what we've heard before God. And then from verse 28 through verse 31, he describes to them the ministry they must own the ministry they must own. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you, uh, among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Here's Paul's final word, his final charge to these leaders in Ephesus, his final directive to them. He, He urges them to vigilance. Notice those two commands in verses 28 and verse 31. Pay careful attention and be alert. Pay careful attention, be alert. What's the first thing to which a spiritual leader must pay careful attention? Paul says they must pay attention to themselves. The the prerequisite for those of us who have been called to leadership in God's church is that we attend to ourselves, to our own spiritual health, our own integrity. None of us can, can adequately nourish and protect others if we neglect the care and cultivation of our own souls. More on that in a moment. Secondly, that a a shepherd must pay careful attention to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers. Notice that word all. All. One of the things I've observed over the years is that some leaders only want to care for the sheep they like best uh, or who like them best, who give them the affection or the admiration they desire. Others only want to be held responsible for a portion of the flock, um, those that may be in a particular area of ministry in which the leader has personal interest. Paul's saying that an overseer should never content himself to shepherd only a part of the flock. Instead, every overseer, every elder needs to have the whole flock on his heart, on his mind, and he must have eyes for all the flock. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2, God asks the prophet, should not shepherds feed the sheep? 
Should not shepherds feed the sheep? Should they not take care of the flock? Paul adds two powerful incentives in verse 28. Notice he calls the flock the church of God. And something I noticed this week that I have not noticed in all my life, actually, is that Paul always refers to the church as the church of God. Um, there's a reminder here that the church, whether local or universal, is God's church. And uh, severe problems arise when a pastor or an elder loses sight of that, begins to treat the church as if it's his becomes authoritarian and demanding, begins using the church for his own selfish purposes. Sadly, (laughs) the examples are numerous throughout history of men who have made that fatal mistake. Paul, Paul adds that it's God's church for one reason, one reason alone, that it was obtained, that it was bought, it was redeemed with his precious blood. And as pastors and elders, we we ought to remind ourselves frequently of the infinitely high value of the church and of each individual believer within the church for whom Christ died. It's God's church. It's not ours. It's not mine. Christ died to redeem his church. We didn't. But as those who are called and gifted to shepherd the flock, it's on us to follow the example of Christ and to lay down our lives for the church. Paul presents a second major reason for overseers to be alert and to pay careful attention, and that's because of the false teachers, the fierce violent wolves that Paul knew, he knew, would come in to the church after his departure, not sparing the flock, but devastating the flock. And and they will come from both inside and outside the church. And Paul points to three identifying marks that help us know who they are. Number one, their primary concern will not be for the flock, but for themselves. They have a, a diabolical ulterior motive to, to soothe their own ego, to line their own pockets, to feed only themselves. Secondly, he says they'll speak twisted things. And, the, and that word translated twisted means to thoroughly turn. What does that mean? It means that they'll begin with the sound biblical doctrine that Paul had taught the Ephesian believers, but then we'll begin to incrementally insert false doctrine. Progressively, relentlessly, twisting, corrupting, and perverting it to the degree that when they're done, it's become something very different than it was at the start. And then third, he says, they will draw away the disciples after them. Draw them away from what? From from the fellowship of the local church. From corporate worship, from the influence of sound biblical teaching, from every source of influence that might capture their attention, might bring them back to their senses. And I I think Paul may have been picturing the work of a wolf. And and you've seen this on National Geographic or Discovery. You've seen the work of a wolf to to separate the, the weak, the vulnerable, prey from the protection of a flock or from a herd, and and having then separated them, devouring them. That's the picture that Paul's pointing to here. And there are, unfortunately, many Christians today who are being drawn away by wolves, by false teachers who, who espouse twisted, deadly doctrines that deceive the weak 
and the undiscerning. By, by the way, uh, by my projection, we're going to finish our series through Acts at the end of June. But then sometime in July or August, I'm going to bring a message uh, on this subject, and we're going to name names um, because I want you to know who and what are some of these deadly influences that are out there. Uh, here's what I already know. Some of you are reading their material in your devotions, and, and that ought to be very frightening. We're, we're being influenced by them without even knowing. Well, how did Paul know that all this would happen? How, how could he predict with such great confidence that this would become a threat in Ephesus? And the answer is that the Spirit of God had revealed it to him. He wrote in, he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. In 1 Timothy 1.3, we learn that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to, to counter this very problem. Timothy was probably there uh, at, in that gathering at Miletus among the elders of the church in Ephesus. Um, as we read verses 3 to 7, it becomes clear that, that what Paul had, had warned the elders of had actually come to pass. He writes to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Reading on in that letter, Paul even provides to Timothy the names of people whose faith had previously been shipwrecked by spiritual deception there in Ephesus. And in Revelation 2, 1 through 7, another indicator of what had taken place in Ephesus, the glorified Christ said uh, to the Apostle John of the church in Ephesus that they had abandoned their first love. They'd abandoned their first love. Spiritual deception by savage wolves was a, a clear and present danger in the church then. It remains a clear and present danger in the church today. So this is the ministry that pastors, elders, church leaders must own. And Paul comes to the close of his address with these words in verses 32 to 35, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Having reminded them of the past they had known, the the integrity, the faithfulness, the thoroughness, thoroughness with which he had ministered among them, and the ministry that they must own to keep watch over the flock of God, over which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers, protecting them from deceivers. 
the veteran apostle commends them first to God. What is what does this mean? It, mean? it means literally that Paul is finally taking his hands off of the church in Ephesus. His, his ministry to them, for them, among them is is complete. It's done, and he affirms in doing that 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 they belong to God, and he's releasing them and trusting in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. He commends them also. And by the way, that, that word commend, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. It's the same word that Jesus spoke on the cross when he released his spirit and, and uh, breathed his last. He says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He was, he was releasing it. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's releasing the church in Ephesus. And he commends them also to the word of God's grace. What, what's the word of God's grace? It, it's, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. Notice, notice what Paul says the gospel is able to continue to do in them and for them. He says it's able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The ongoing ministry of the gospel in our lives, and it is an ongoing ministry, um, is able to make us into what he wants us to be. Sometimes we think of the gospel, and sometimes it's presented this way, as, as something that we responded to a long time ago, and, and then we moved on from that. That's not at all the way the New Testament presents the gospel. We, we, we live the gospel. Uh, we, we orbit the gospel. We, we dive deep into the gospel. The gospel goes deep into us. It, it transforms us over a lifetime. And it's able to give us everything that God provides, everything we could ever possibly need to live this life and to be his people. And then in 36 to 38, there is this, what I just called a tear-soaked milestone. And it really requires no commentary. It speaks for itself. When he had said these things, he knelt down, prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they they accompanied him to the ship. I think all of us have been there in one time or another of of a tearful farewell where you you just don't want to say goodbye. You just don't want to release someone. You just don't want them to go. And so that's what's happening here. And the finality of it all was overwhelming to them. Well, as I wrap this up, there, let me just share a few priorities that I think we must not postpone. And these are priorities for pastors and elders, all others who are in leadership in, in the ministries of our church. First of all, we must not postpone the priority of completing the ministry that God has given to us as a church, Life Point Church. Paul's primary focus was finishing his race, completing the ministry that he had received from the Lord Jesus. We who lead Life Point Church need to embrace that mindset. Now, God called us into being in 2008 when we planted uh, in Lacey. Uh, do you know 
that 80% of church plants fail within their first five years. Every 80% of every church, every new church that is started will fail within their first five years. For some reason, by God's grace, we're part of the 20 that, that survived. A significance to that, I think. God has a purpose for our being here. In 2019, uh, the last year for which I could find really reliable statistics, more, more churches closed in 2019 than were started. Uh, during that year, approximately 3,000 Protestant churches were started in the United States, but 4,500, 1,500 more closed. And if we calculate that 80% of those 3,000 that started in 2019, then if that statistic holds true, then only 600 of those will have survived. Well, 4,500 closed. Now, we don't yet have reliable statistics available for the impact, the overall impact of COVID-19 on the evangelical church in America, but, but we do know that nationwide church attendance uh, during the pandemic dropped below 50% of what it was before the pandemic. And a large percentage of those people have not come back. My point is this. For some reason, in spite of all of that, we're still here. And part of what that tells me is that, that God has a plan and a purpose for our church. So, so I want to say to you who are pastors in this church, who are elders, who are staff members, lay leaders, to all the rest of you, let, let's finish the course. Let's finish the course. Let, let's complete the ministry to which God has called us, which is to help people in Thurston County and beyond to find and follow Jesus. We should never have as a goal to be the best church in town. But, but we ought to make it a goal to be one of the best churches for this town. That, that we would make Christ, faithfully make Christ known in this city. Secondly, we who lead in, in any part of the ministry must not postpone or neglect the priority of watching over ourselves. Paul said to the, the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves. Verse 28. To Timothy, he wrote, There in Ephesus, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And of course, that great prophet Johnny Cash saying, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. See, keeping a, a watch on our on our spiritual lives, our marriages, our families, our relationships, our morality, our ethics, our personal weaknesses is all part of the first priority of leadership. And accountability calls us to keep a close watch on each other as well. Third, we must not postpone the priority of watching over the flock. Remember that Paul saw 
in that priority a dual responsibility. First, that, that we would set an example for the flock in our lifestyle, in the thoroughness of our teaching, the thoroughness of our appeal, the thoroughness of our methods. Paul wrote to Titus and said that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as it was taught him so that he in turn may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. So we must give ourselves to the energetic study of God's word so as to be able to carry out that mandate. There are no shortcuts to that. The second part of that dual responsibility to watch over the flock, Paul said, is to maintain alertness to the encroachment into the church of spiritual predators who would ravage the flock through false deceptive doctrines. Remember that the Lord Jesus himself warned, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. At present, uh, it seems that there are more false teachers, more charlatans operating in the name of Jesus than ever before, and and really an explosion of avenues at their disposal um, by which they can exercise that malign influence on naive, undiscerning Christians. And it's our responsibility to identify them, to name names when necessary, to expose their deceptions. Finally, the fourth priority addressed in in today's text that we must not postpone is to regain and to restore a sense of the infinitely high value of the church, to do that collectively, to do that individually. Paul wants us to value the church. Why? Because God's word tells us that that he values the church above all. Notice the Trinitarian emphasis Paul brings to his description of the church. He says, first, it's the church of God. Second, it was obtained with the blood of Christ. And third, it's the focused work of the Holy Spirit. You see, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, is all in when it comes to the church. The church is the bride of Christ. One day soon he'll come to take us home to the place he's prepared for us. And I think that's just around the corner. Look, if the three persons of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are so invested, so committed, so attentive to the welfare of the church, so must we be. It's so easy for us to treat the church as something mundane, something common, something every day. God doesn't view us that way, and we need to get his perspective. How how can any of us view it any other way? One who calls himself, listen to me when I say this, one who calls himself or herself a follower of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, and then demonstrates a casual attitude toward the church, which Christ bought with his own blood, is a walking contradiction. I've often shared with you that in any given week, while I'm preparing my message, a a song will come to mind that that reflects in some way the text of the week, and it just kind of sticks in my mind all week. (laughs) That was true this week. And this week, it's been an old hymn that we would sing in church when I was young, one of my favorite hymns. And I won't bore you with the whole song, but, but I'd like to share the first verse of that hymn as we close, because it speaks to the high regard that you and I ought to have for the church, whether we're a leader or just a lay person. Here it is. The church is one foundation, 
is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you today for your word. I thank you that it speaks to us, and I trust today that it is spoken according to your purpose. Lord, help us to love you. Help us to love your church. Help us as a church, Lord, to complete the course, finish the race, fulfill the purpose for which you called us into being. Lord, there is so much about the church that's every day, that's mundane, that's this and that. But you love the church with all of our warts and our blemishes, and you're purifying us to be a holy bride. And one day you'll come again to take us home. Help us to keep our eyes on that. Help us to understand who we are in Christ. And Lord, may we never give up that precious hope that purifies us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.